Mac, thanks for joining me. I've heard your name a lot and uh, only recently had the pleasure of meeting you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, definitely. So we're going to dig into your history. It's literally one of the richest and varied backgrounds I've come across anywhere, not just in Charlotte, but especially rare in, in Charlotte. Uh, most of my listeners will already know your bio, but at the highest level, you've participated in six successful exits. Is that correct? Varying degrees of success, but yes, six exits. <laughs> <laughs> an exit's an exit, right? Exactly <laughs> If right. you don't get stuck in Vietnam, that's a good thing, right? That's a finish line. <laughs> so, so obviously, there's going to be a lot to cover here with, with, with six exits. I want to start at the beginning. Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? So I'm actually a native Charlottean. I'm one of the, I think they say it's 8% now <laughs> that was born here. And um, I went to East Mech High School. So I'm part of the East Mech Mafia, as we joke around. <laughs> Um, and then I went to uh, Wake Forest to play soccer. Um, it's kind of my passion growing up. So started playing soccer there and then uh, finished at Barry College in Georgia. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Soccer, I think, is going to be one theme that we pick up on as we talk through your history because it's varied and kind of all over the place. But soccer seems to be one that you keep keep coming back to. Yeah, it's been a big part of my life, uh, passion growing up and then has been a constant theme throughout. Awesome. Awesome. So what was your first job out of college? So I actually uh, met a gentleman who I think you know well, Steve Amedio, uh, <laughs> playing soccer. So we were sort of contemporaries in the soccer world. Um, and when I finished playing, I played one year professionally after college. Um, the, the new league, which at the time was not called the USL, but it was before the MLS existed. So I played one year professionally. Um, and then I was looking for a job and I was hired uh, by Steve for the marketing department of a little software company he was a part of. Uh, so that was kind of my first official job. Wow. What, what a way to learn yeah. with, with Steve and media, but also the professional soccer experience. Can you talk a little bit about what your experience playing on a team, uh, coming up as a youth and then playing a year professionally? How do, how do you think that impacted your work ethic, the way you operate with others and kind of your overall career trajectory? Yeah, it's interesting how, um, you know, Steve Jobs always talks about seeing the dots uh, connected in hindsight. And that was a lot of it for me. Um, my sole focus for most of my youth was soccer. That was my passion. My dreams growing up is, you know, I wanted to be a college All-American. I wanted to play professionally. I mean, I sort of thought of my life through the soccer lens. And it was a, because it was something I was so driven by, it never felt like work to me. I loved playing. I played seven days a week. Um, and then as I was slowly checking off kind of the, I guess the goals, you know, I, I got a scholarship to a great college and I was, you know, uh, I became an All-American. I was sort of achieving these things. And the next logical progression was to be a professional. The challenge was, you know, coming out of college in 94, there weren't a lot of really good options. And so playing abroad was not an option. Uh, there was no MLS here in the US yet. So I played in the best league that I could, but it was a pretty significant drop down from expectations because day-to-day -day life for a professional at that point was, you know, playing Nintendo and <laughs> lifting weights and then having a game or having practice and then having the rest of your day off. And, and I really felt, um, like I, I needed to do a lot more with my life than that. So I sort of said, all right, well, I've checked the box. I played a year. It's time to move on. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I played lacrosse in high school and college, and it was the same kind of thing. I don't think I was, was good enough. I wasn't dedicated enough to play professional, let's put it that way. But the professional leagues, it, 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 it wasn't a full-time job unless you're one of the top shelf guys who can go actually – get get some sponsorship deals and even then it's nothing like what what it's become i i imagine in soccer now you might have a different look at prof at the professional leagues I, I, it feels like it's it's really taken over america's imagination maybe not to the extent that it has the rest of the world but it certainly feels different than it did 15 years ago even yeah it's it's i'm jealous i mean i you know i'm excited for the young american players but i'm very jealous the the reality of playing abroad is so real now. I mean, if you're coming out of high school, college, and you're a, a good player, certainly if you're a you know top 10%, you can play somewhere in the world. I mean, you can play Spain, Germany, Italy, you know, travel the world. And I, and I had an opportunity in, in high school, I got selected to go play in South America for with a team. And so it was a huge part of my life. But I still looking back, I'm like, ah, if I could have just been born, you know, 10, 15 years later. <laughs> uh, but but no, it's been it's been a really, really meaningful part of my life 
as a player, but also as I transitioned to fan and then as I transitioned to business opportunities, which I'm sure we'll talk about mm -hmm. and, uh, and how many of my great life experiences were on a field, either as a player or, you know, in some other context. That, that's awesome. So, how, so, you, so you're working, um, at running marketing for Steve's company. What was the name of that business? It was called JFL Enterprises. It was a, a educational software business. Actually, it was becoming a software business at the time. It was really um, uh, a gentleman who had this incredible methodology to help kids learn to read. Sort of uh, remediation. Um, we were converting his sort of philosophy and methodology into software. And so it was my first exposure to software, but more importantly, um, for me, it was my first exposure to startup. And so I only worked there, I think it was maybe six months before mm -hmm. uh, Steve and I, you know, convinced one another that we should leave and start our own business. And Steve was really more of a self-taught engineer. I was really on kind of the marketing side focused on business. Um, but just the, the day to day life of a startup was amazing to me, you know, coming in one day, you're trying to learn to write code, the next day, you're taking out the trash, the next day, you're making cold calls. And that energy was just something I, I knew I wanted to be a part of. Yeah, I, I remember when we started level, I would go do billable work for American Airlines, one of our large clients, and, and I'd get done. And then I would call the other employees and harass them to get their timesheets in so that I could run invoicing. <laughs> and, and it's funny because you know, I'm sitting in a hotel in Dallas away from my young, young children at the time, but I, it was still so exciting. And, and you, you don't, like you said about the soccer, it doesn't feel like work if you love, if you love what you're doing and it helps when you're doing it on your own around people you love and work well with. It's, it's, it's really exhilarating. It's challenging at times, but it's absolutely it in hindsight. It's always, uh, it, it's, I remember it being great, but when you're living it, it's like, it's actually stressful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there is a dark side to it for sure. <laughs> so, um, so, so you and Steve decide to go out on your own. Is that in touch interactive? It is. Yes. Okay. So in touch interactive first quarter of 1995, we started, uh, in touch, and it was really uh, a custom software company, but we identified the internet super early. So shortly after Netscape launched the commercial web browser, we were moving into the internet development space. We were really, really early web 1.0. Um, and it was a, you know, we got a $10,000 loan from a family member. You know, my father was involved as, as a kind of a partner and advisor. Um, you know, it was just such a, garage startup, we were really trying to figure out how to do everything from day one. Well, and, and I imagine once, once people understood the internet, once business people understood the internet, they don't have anybody who knows anything about it, right? There's all, all of this Unix infrastructure that you need. There's, there's data connectivity that you need. There's web programming. They, they, they really can't build those skills. So you, I, I imagine that during that time, if it, once somebody knew that they needed to be on the internet, you were almost shooting fish in a barrel is, is my guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, what's crazy is during 95, 96, even into 97, I feel like all I was doing is explaining to people what the internet is mm -hmm. and why it matters. You know, I mean, we're meeting with fortune 500 fortune 100 companies sitting in boardrooms where, you know, in our early twenties and we're telling them that the internet is going to change their business. And a lot of people agreed with that, or at least were curious enough to, you know, engage us to do something. But we were almost laughed out of rooms. I mean, they were like, you know, the internet is not going to be a meaningful thing. It's a flash in the pan. And so a lot of that, those early days were educating people. And, and Steve and I and our other teammates early on really saw something that we thought was going to fundamentally shift the market and business. And we felt like, we're looking around going, why is no one else seeing this? Uh, so it was a really exciting time, uh, but a lot of education, a lot of grind to convince people that they really needed to, you know, think about e-commerce, put their information on the internet, trust a credit card, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. You, you, I mean, you're hitting on a lot of things there. There's so much infrastructure that companies have today. It's almost trivial to set up an e-commerce experience with a secure end to end payment processing and loyalty program and everything else that you could possibly 
possibly want. But back then, you were rolling your own on a lot of these things. There weren't widely available e-commerce solutions, shopping cards, content management, payment processing, uh, lots of work to be done. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, um, it's kind of funny to look back and think about we had Fortune 500 companies sitting on a server on a washing and dryer <laughs> washing <laughs> machine in our, in our little condo. And, and uh, that's because there was, yeah, there was no sort of distributed um, platform that you could just turn this stuff on. There was no AWS, you know, yep. you had to have a dedicated server. And when you got to a certain level of capacity, you had to add a server physically. Yep. So uh, <laughs> really, really early days. That's awesome. So, so you guys, did you sell that business in 1998? Is that that's correct? correct. Okay. Yes. A 1998. And what, what led you to decide that was the best course of action? Yeah, that was really um, kind of the sign of the times, but we were building our company, um, trying to be profitable. Every dollar we would make, uh, we would pile back into hiring talented people. So we were growing engineers, we were growing designers. Um, and back then, just, just for folks who maybe don't know the Charlotte market as well, not a lot of tech talent back then, I, I'm guessing. <laughs> no, we, we were bringing people in from other states. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we were getting really, really early adopters who were more curious to learn how to do some of these things, uh, maybe convert some older programming languages into sort of the modern languages. And so we were really just focused on growing our business. And um, although we were very profitable, Steve and I, uh, we weren't making any money. You mm -hmm. know, we were just really struggling. I mean, I was living in a one-bedroom apartment. Uh, I was married in 96. My wife and I were, you know, eating peanut butter and jellies. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so when someone all of a sudden came along and said, we want to buy your company, the space got like lightning hot overnight. Like multiple people were interested in buying what we had built. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was uh, they wanted our customers. They wanted this market. Charlotte, they wanted the expertise we had assembled. And so uh, eventually, we just got an offer we couldn't refuse, you know, we went from mm -hmm. kind of being 20 somethings, barely able to get peanut butter and jellies on the table every night to kind of a, you know, an eight figure, you know, yep. opportunity that was life changing. And so, uh, so we sold the business in uh, 98. And then the acquire went public in 99. So a year later, and that was IXL. It is was that correct. Okay, yes. so, so so this is one that's near and dear to my heart. I joined a competitor, or nominally a competitor in that space. I think the big names at the time: IXL, March First, maybe Razorfish, Sapient, Scient, Viant. Um, I, I joined a company in in 2000. I accepted the offer in '99 and started in 2000. When I accepted the offer, they were called BDS. Um, a month later, they changed their name to Talon. And by the time I started with them, they had been acquired for a billion dollars. And it was a 300-person company. And they were acquired by CMGI, if you remember CMGI. Oh, yes, of and, course. And so by the time I started, I worked for CMGI Solutions. Okay. And it was the most insane time. They, I mean, th there was so much money being thrown at these, at these businesses. Can you maybe talk about what that year at IXL was, was like? Yeah, it was, it was in the heat of the internet bubble effectively, you know, mm -hmm. and, and a lot of that was, you know, grow as fast as you can. We were preparing for an IPO. One of the metrics on Wall Street was billable headcount. And so mm -hmm. they wanted you to hire engineers as fast as you could find them because Wall Street was kind of crediting companies with billable headcount as a metric, which didn't make a lot of sense to us. One of the things that was interesting for IXL is they did 32 acquisitions, I believe it was. And so we were I think one of two profitable companies they acquired. <laughs> and so we were very much focused on building a good business and they were, you know, effectively forcing us to grow much faster than um, profit would allow. And some of the other, you know, uh, companies that were acquired, I mean, the founders of Wayfair, you know, were, were you know, their company was acquired. They were peers of ours at the time. And so you're sitting around with all these young, driven, smart people but Wall Street was really pushing the narrative. And so it was a crazy time. Um, I resigned the day after the IPO. And so I effectively checked the box and said, you know, yeah, got, <laughs> got the money, made it through the IPO, made a ton of mistakes, um, but left the next day to start my next company. That's awesome. And so was that internet soccer? It was. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me about that. We've talked about your passion for soccer. What was internet soccer? How'd you go about starting it? I'm, I'm assuming you weren't 
you didn't just come up with the idea the day after the IPO. <laughs> no, ex exactly right. Um, so I had this real passion for soccer, and because we were early in the internet, we kept seeing um, things develop. And I was sort of looking out in my mind a few years out and thinking there are soccer fans all over the world, many of which are outside the U.S., which are incredibly passionate. And there was not a great deal of good quality information and content for soccer-specific um, fans on the internet. And so our idea was take all of this content that we could find about leagues and countries and things around the world and consolidate it in what we were, I think we were calling it um, a portal uh, at the time, but it was basically a vertically focused, you know, all we did was soccer. But we um, became a big content business. We became the largest producer of non-televised soccer content in the world very, very quickly. Um, we had an e-commerce offering. We partnered with the largest soccer-specific retailer in the world, um, but we were so early that we had thousands of products for sale, but no one was buying anything yet. Sure. So we were really, really early. But it was an it was an awesome opportunity for myself and some others that were really passionate about soccer to kind of drive a vision of what should that look like on the internet. Um, and so we, we did a bunch of acquisitions, um, built up the company really fast, got to a term sheet from a group in New York in March of 2000. One of my co-founders and I were sitting uh, out west uh, skiing, smoking cigars, celebrating this term sheet and thinking about uh, what it was going to be like. And then I think it was about a week later, the NASDAQ crashed and kind of uh, the bubble burst. So March of 2000. Correct. So, um, yeah, I, I remember that time well, because it was it, a lot of that, a lot of the crash is credited to have started with some earnings problems that MicroStrategy reported. And they were, they were the, one of the big high flyers among many AOL and others in DC where I'm, where I'm from and MicroStrategy precipitated that. And I remember, I, I remember I, I was still in school and I'm reading about that and I'm seeing things unfold and I'm calling my recruiter at, at Talon. <laughs> now it's Talon. It's not CMGI Solutions yet. And I'm like, are we going to be okay? And he's like, look, we're well funded. We're not, you know, we're not pulling back. And yeah. but, it, but it was scary. It was interesting times for sure. So, so all of this is unfolding. The NASDAQ crashes, falls to maybe 33% of its value. Um, so, so the term sheet gets pulled back, it sounds like? Or? Yeah, it was, it was kind of getting renegotiated mm -hmm. and we effectively tore it up. Um, and What's amazing, and I'm happy to go into this in more detail, but I know there's a lot of stuff we could cover, but that period from uh, March of 2000 until we sold the company w was perhaps the craziest four to six months of my life um, because we were at that time in March of 2000, I think we had about 10 days of cash in the bank. Wow. And I had a team of 60. Wow. So, wow. so I've, I've we been in not not quite that extreme, but I've been in that boat where you're like, what are we going to do? Yeah, we were just back at the wall because we really were confident we were we were going to be able to raise money. Mm -hmm. It was just a question of which firm, which terms we had a term sheet uh, for 15 million, which we didn't need, but about three. So we were yeah. in a great spot in our minds. We didn't need to worry about cash or burn. And uh, all of a sudden the rug gets pulled out from under us and we're thinking we, we're not going to make it, you know, 10 days. Well, so let's, I want to talk about one aspect of this that's really fascinating to me. So how do you think, how differently do you think you would have reacted to that had you not just had an eight-figure exit recently? Because on a personal level, you, I, it, it changes the, 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 the risk calculation. It changes a lot of things for you. Have, have you ever reflected on that and thought about how you might have thought differently had you not had the IXL money in your bank account? Yeah, I have a lot because I also, um, one of many, many mistakes I made is in the uh, post IXL IPO, you know, this is again, sign of the times, Henry Blodgett, who was kind of mm -hmm. one of the, the icons of the industry. He's business I, insight. He did, was he business yeah, insider? Exactly. Yeah, sure. And at the time he was kind of the iconic Wall Street um, internet guy effectively. And I mean, I spoke to him on the phone personally about my IXL stock and, and I, did not sell hardly any stock. I mean, my net worth was 90%, you know, um, yeah. IXL slash other tech companies, because that's all I knew. I didn't know anything about stocks or bonds or diversification or any of those words that make a lot of sense to me now. Um, and so I was also watching my net worth and life fall off a cliff in March of 2000, because, you know, my wealth was in tech stocks. Yep. And so um, even though I, I felt 
very good about the fact that I knew how to generate opportunities. I knew how to generate wealth in my mind. Um, I was also watching a lot of what I thought and believed and was confident in disappear. So um, we were really, we were in a tough spot, but, but I think what's so cool about the story in hindsight is that pressure, it, it does sort of date back to, you know, the soccer field, you know, you're, you're down, you've got five minutes left in the game, you're about to lose or something. And so I, myself and my partners were really kind of digging deep to say, all right, well, we're not going to let this go under. Like, that's just not an option. Mm -hmm. And so um, I boarded a flight to Europe and had one of the most uh, interesting 24-hour periods of my life where I, I got on a plane to go to London where our, most of our big competitors were. And I had no meetings scheduled. And I knew if I got back on a plane to the U.S. without a deal or a term sheet, our company was going under. Mm -hmm. And from mm -hmm. landing in, in Europe and calling one competitor and telling them, you know, about the meetings with the others and creating some leverage, we ended up getting a, a term sheet from a public company in Europe that ultimately acquired the business for eight figures and um, made it all work out great. It's awesome. Like like you said before, it's easy to connect dots in hindsight, but I bet at the time it was... Uh, <laughs> the dots didn't seem as connected. No, I, I, during internet soccer, for whatever reason, I think I had read a book about uh, someone keeping a diary or keeping a daily sort of journal. And I had never done that in my life. For whatever reason, I chose to do that from the day we started internet soccer until the day we sold it, I had a daily journal. And when I tell the stories about internet soccer, I think of it as one of the greatest experiences of my life because it was an area of passion. We had a great outcome. Um, I read the day-to-day -day journal and it was like, you know, <laughs> sleeping on the floor, throwing up, I'm so stressed out. Wow. I mean, it's like, wow, we were really in the grind. But in hindsight, it's like, oh, that was great. Yeah. <laughs> so well, that that's awesome. So, so you've got once you get the term sheet and the, the wires clear, and, and, and the ink dries, you've got to be reflecting on what you've just been through between internet soccer and in touch interactive and, and thinking I can conquer the world. Right? Yeah, I think there is a is a tendency, particularly when you're when you're young and, you know, immature and all the things that I probably could have been called. I mean, you can sort of conflate luck and skill and timing. And, and I, I, you know, I was very fortunate and I'm, I still consider some of the biggest critical success factors, like who I partnered with and who I was around. I had awesome people around me. Um, but yeah, we definitely thought we had a formula that was like, this is just repeatable. I can keep doing this. And uh, so I was very confident. I was relieved that we were able to get to that exit door because we watched a lot of our contemporaries, you know, crash and burn and watch a lot of wealth and a lot of opportunity disappear um, sure. after March of 2000. Um, but for me, it was it was a very strong validation of, you know, if you're committed to the outcome, even when the odds are incredibly low, like 10 days of cash, <laughs> um, you can you can get there. So fly to London without any plans and just make a pact with yourself that you're not leaving until you have a term sheet. That sounds exactly easy. right. Yeah. <laughs> sounds very repeatable, Mac. <laughs> yeah. That part of the formula, not repeatable. <laughs> so, so I believe from a, from a LinkedIn stock that the next thing was team talk. Is that correct? Was that the next company? So they were the buyers of internet. Software. They were the buyers. Okay. Yeah. So Got that it. was a publicly traded company out of Europe. They were owned by news corp and sky at the time. And I ran us operations for them for, I think it was 365 days exactly. Okay. Which was a, that was a repeatable formula for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that I've seen, uh, that, that seems to be, uh, be pretty consistent. I, um, my first exit, I stuck around for two years and then the, the next exit, the, the second exit that I had, which is the only other one, um, was, uh, in, in hindsight, was actually very fortunate. My, my partners and I didn't see eye to eye in late 2018. I wanted to acquire a business that was about half our size or two thirds of our size and, and kind of double down on it. And they decided it was time to sell. And when there's three partners and two of you want to go one way and one wants to go the other, it's, it's obvious where you go. So I had to, they asked me to step down as CEO. I remained on as a shareholder and, uh, and, in retrospect, it was one of the best things to ever happen because we sold it in April of this year and I was treated as an investor, not as an employee. So I went from a two year, <laughs> two year earnout to a zero year earnout, which feels really good. I got to figure out how to repeat that one. Yes, that's a great <laughs> strategy. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the business that I've heard the most about from from your past, I, I've, I've heard a lot about Kick, which we'll get to, but Etain in particular is one that um, that that's closest to my wheelhouse, my background in, in technology services. 
Um, and E-Team's obviously a huge name with lots and lots of people. I, I see you were CEO there for a year and a half. Did you start E-Team or did you just, were you brought in to run it because you had the experience selling the IXL? How did, how did that all play out? So yeah, um, E-Team was, was actually a, um, a merger between, um, I'm blanking on the original, the original company that we started was called E-Team, I think E-Team Group or E-Team something, <laughs> um, and then Tech Solutions, which was a technical staffing company. Uh, Tech Solutions was a, the the founders of Tech Solutions were um, friends of mine from Wake Forest mm -hmm. um, back in the day. I was sort of tracking them as they were getting started as entrepreneurs. I think they may have been clients of InTouch Interactive, you know, so we had a really mm -hmm. good close personal relationship. In March of 2000, sort of ironic timing, I also co-founded Etain. So I was in the middle of running internet soccer, <laughs> um, seeing all these opportunities. So with the founders of Tech Solutions, we created a new business, which was meant to be more um, software development, custom software. And so I started that in March of 2000. We raised a little capital. I was chairman at the time, largest shareholder, um, but we hired a team, a CEO, mm -hmm. CTO. And then um, about a year later, you know, the, the NASDAQ had crashed, tech companies were really struggling. That business had burned through most of the capital we'd raised. And um, I was asked by the board to come in and mm -hmm. turn it around. And I agreed to come in, but part of that process was we were gonna merge the company with Tech Solutions, create a mm -hmm. larger business, try to get it profitable. And so that was kind of the origin of what is now Etain. Um, is, is sort of merging those companies together. And I was the, the CEO and largest shareholder through kind of that, that process. That, that's awesome. And so can you talk a little bit about, because internet soccer and, um, and to a lesser extent what you were doing with IXL, those are a little bit sexier businesses in many people's minds than a staffing business. Staffing businesses are typically lower margin, a little bit more of a grind. I, I've met the founders of uh, Apex Solutions and they did very, very well with it. So I don't care how unsexy it appears. It's sexy to me because yeah, they, did, they did well. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. But can you talk about the difference working for, you know, an internet soccer that's, this is a scalable content-based business. It can scale to internet scale. Staffing can't scale to internet scale. It's inherently a linear progression. I've, I sell I sell a body, I hire a body. So that, that there, there's, there's differences. Can you speak to the difference running one type of business versus another and how you approach the two? And I may be wrong in my impressions of, of Etain there, and you can correct me if I am. No, I think it's it's a key insight. And, and one of the things that led to um, my decisions around Etain. So at the time, you know, again, we merged what was a traditional tech staffing business with a little bit more sexy custom software development, um, mm -hmm. not super sexy, but <laughs> a little more. Um, and part of the idea there was, was really this kind of hybrid model that would be a little higher margin. We mm -hmm. could work very, very fluidly with large organizations and kind of meet all of their needs. But it was also, this was early 2000s and the tech market was really distressed. And so part of my vision, because we had done a lot of acquisitions in internet soccer of really small companies that helped mm -hmm. us grow quickly, Part of my vision was buying distressed tech companies and really bulking up. And so what I was excited about as a CEO and as a shareholder was the M&A opportunity, the fact that the market was distressed, the fact that I thought we could create some real scale through acquisition. And ultimately, that thesis, um, whether it was right or not, that became a similar to your story, a conflict between myself and some of my co-founders and the board, which ultimately, it wasn't a bad decision by any means, but the chairman of the board at that time, lar largest investor, sat down with me and said, Mac, you, you know, you have a key decision to make. You've built and sold a couple companies, you're young, you're the CEO of this business, it's a, at the time it was, I don't remember, maybe 15 million in revenue or something, so it was mm -hmm. still relatively early, and um, you can stick around and operationalize this business and grow it as a CEO and become a CEO in your career. Or you can resign and start a new company and you're a startup guy. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a great question. And I thought <laughs> about it for about 24 hours and said, I'm a startup guy. Um, and my, so I sold my interest uh, to my partners and you know they continued for, I mean, gosh, at least another decade to build that business. And 
had a had a great exit. I mean, they're they're awesome guys, smart guys. Just you could see the difference in yep. interest path and trajectory because between that time that I left and they sold it, I you know I had five or six other companies and they were in the same one that whole time. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a, a key insight there. I, um, Peter Thiel talks about the zero to one versus one to n, and I'm, I'm I've definitely come to realize I'm a zero to one, <laughs> maybe maybe even zero to a half. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Very cool. So, um, so now you've been involved in internet businesses, media businesses, staffing businesses, solution businesses. Naturally, you uh, start a clothing line next. It's the, it's the clear <laughs> next step, right? Naturally. <laughs> so, so talk to me about Mountain Khakis and how, because that, that's that's a pretty big brand name at this point that most of the listeners will be aware of, not just the ones here in Charlotte. How, how did how, how did you come up with the concept, what was the concept, and how did you talk yourself into, I can do this? <laughs> yeah, it's, it is a funny, um, it's a funny sort of path because really the reason Mountain Khakis existed uh, for us is because I, like some of my uh, partners and people I tended to work with in my little, uh, my little group, um, were getting a little tired and burned out on some technology stuff. I mean, I, I think, you know, the going through the process at Etain, Looking back, it, it made tremendous sense. But going through it, you know, it was emotional. And mm -hmm. how are we going to figure this out? And should I leave? Should I stay? And I just really felt like I needed a break uh, from technology because it was, it was, you know, a lot of work. And shortly, maybe a day or two after I had resigned from uh, the board of Etain, I was sitting at a breakfast with a gentleman talking about investing in tech stuff. And he asked me if I ever invested outside of tech. And I said, I, I haven't. Um, I'd be happy to consider it. And he said, I've got a, a young guy who has an idea that is really struggling to get traction. And so I followed him out to the parking lot. He handed me a business plan. And it was for an apparel company. And he said, you know, he's been trying for a year or two to get this thing going. He's about to give up. And I just said, I don't, you know, I don't do apparel. I like clothes, but I'm not, I don't know anything about <laughs> apparel. I don't know how to do that. And I said, well, just take the business plan home and maybe you can help this, this, I think you called him kid because he was young at the time. Is that Ross? Or no, this no. was um, a gentleman that, okay. he, he literally had an idea and it was a really good idea, but there was a, there was no product. There was a name, Mountain Khakis, and there was a watercolor sketch of a pair of pants. And the idea was effectively that in places like Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which became the, the sort of the spirit foundation of our company, there were this, this large concentration of wealth, these billionaires that mm -hmm. were living there and they were wearing four and $500 Gore-Tex jackets and they were, you know, but they were wearing Carhartt pants, which were like $30 work pants and they were stiff as a board. And he said, you know, there's gotta be a product that is durable enough for life in Jackson Hole, but a little more fashionable. And, and the, the imagery in the, in the business plan just sort of caught me emotionally. And so I read it and said, you know, this is, this is a cool idea. I would enjoy helping this guy. Got on the phone with him, uh, decided that, you know, I could help him, decided to, you know, kind of jump in. Uh, the gentleman that gave me the plan also wanted to be involved. I called, uh, you know, Ross, who had been a kind of a longtime co-founder or, or partner of mine in various things and said, you know, as I do with Ross a lot, I'm not going to do it unless you do it because <laughs> <laughs> I know my strengths and weaknesses and I need, you know, smart people around me to balance myself out. So, so yeah, we started Mountain Khakis um, from a, from a business plan. The gentleman that had the idea, we ultimately bought him out before we even launched the company because he had the idea, but didn't really have a lot of additional things to add. And so uh, we went to the mall and bought a bunch of different pants and started cutting them out and figured out how to create pants. And uh, yeah, it was incredibly fun learning experience for me. So new industry, um, new process, everything about it was different than what I had done up to that point. Could, could you use some of your internet skills? Did you guys do some direct sales or do, do a lot of internet marketing? I'm assuming that that was a source of competitive advantage at the time before people had kind of figured the internet. Yeah. Still I, haven't figured it out at that point, right? That's <laughs> for sure. We were, we were, yes, great point. We were early. We launched at retail and e-commerce on the same day, which was kind of unheard of at the time because retailers hated when you also sold on the internet. So mountainkhakis.com launched the same day that we put products in, you know, retail stores. Um, the other thing that served us incredibly well, which is interesting is because we were outsiders, we were coming into an industry and everyone within the industry was telling us what we had to do 
and we kept questioning everything. You know, you have to ship products by this date. These are the ship windows. You have to have a fall line and a spring line. You have to do all these things. And we kept saying, why? That doesn't make any sense to us. And so we did things that were very contrarian to the industry that we were entering. And those things ended up being the smartest decisions we ever made. So Mountain Khakis, you know, within probably the first year was outselling North Face, Patagonia, Columbia, all the biggest brands in the pant category because we were thinking about it completely differently. That's awesome. Uh, which served us really well. Very cool. So, so ultimately, you guys sold Mountain Khakis? We did. We sold 75% of the company to um, Remington, effectively, their, their parent company, which was called the Freedom Group, a Cerberus-backed um, entity that owned Remington and some other gun and ammo companies mm-hmm. as they wanted to enter the outdoor space and kind of diversify away from you know black guns <laughs> and ammo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so we sold 75% uh, at that point. I stayed on the board. Um, I, re- I left sort of day-to-day operations. Ross uh, stayed around at that time and continued to run it. And then the business was sold by Remington and the rest of us uh, shareholders again a number of, number of years later. So you got two exits out of that one. Yeah, that, was, that, a, count that was towards a the six. <laughs> no, that's not. <laughs> I guess that would make it uh, six and a half, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, well, that, that that's great. And uh, it, it is interesting when you can rethink an industry and, and not be constrained by the things that... that that got you here. And I think that's a large part of why Amazon's been so successful as a software vendor is that they've completely rethought the relationships. It's painful to partner with Amazon when you're used to partnering with a Microsoft or an Oracle or an IBM. But because of the way they've rethought everything, I think that gave them a huge advantage over, over the incumbents and why they were able to create an entirely new category that no nobody other than Microsoft has been able to, 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 to even remotely approach and uh, I think it's a testament to thinking differently yeah and I I was going to say even when you just use the term thinking differently I mean obviously every entrepreneur in some ways looks at Steve Jobs Mm -hmm. and talks about his his career and what he's done but what an amazing example of how funny it is to look at you know mid late 90s early 2000s computers and think every computer on earth was a beige box yeah and (laughs) like it just you felt like it had to be a beige box like why was that, right? And so until people come along and question things, and finally you're seeing that now, the entrepreneurial sort of vibe, mm-hmm. I hear it a lot when I'm talking to people, is is they're questioning everything. They're trying to intentionally break sort of paradigms. But back in the, you know, mid-early, you know, two, mid-90s, early 2000s, especially in a place like Charlotte, there were not a lot of entrepreneurs, and it was definitely not cool to be an entrepreneur. I, I always think about going to my kids' early um, you know, when they were in school and people would say, you know, what do you do? And I would say, I'm an entrepreneur. They'd be like, oh, like, sorry. Yeah, in like you couldn't jobs. get a job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the bank wouldn't hire you. So you decided to become an entrepreneur. So, uh, so yeah, it was not easy to be contrarian or do these kind of things when no one else was doing them. Yep, a- absolutely. I, I think that's, uh, I, I think that's great advice. And I think that the point about everybody everywhere is now trying to replicate this. I think that there's a lot of people working in big companies who have opportunities to do entrepreneurial things. And I think that that's exciting. And I I tell a lot of people, maybe you don't need to go work for a startup. Maybe you need to find a funded, find an avid exchange who's raised plenty of money, but still has that spirit or find a company that's reinventing itself because it's a lot less risky. There's going to be a lot less of the, you know, curling up in a ball on the floor and throwing up and eating peanut butter and jelly if it's funded by, by that's, that's very true. <laughs> so, so I talked about kick. Um, I told you before, and when we were talking before this interview that, that, uh, I'd done some work with stratified and they were, uh, and, and they were occupying the same space that kick used to be. And at some point I visited the kick office, I think to just meet somebody. Um, don't think I met you though, but can you talk about kick and what that's all about? And that's KYCK, correct? Correct. Yeah. So kick was, was almost like round two of, of taking the intersection of my passion for soccer and my love of technology and seeing some business opportunities. But what, what we tried to do was really inspired by a funny experience I had. So I was on, uh, I was out in San Francisco at an event my oldest daughter was a soccer player. Um, she was playing in a tournament in Charleston, and I flew across the country. And, you know, you think about sort of the sign of the times. I, you know, downloaded a, a boarding pass. I was able to get on a flight, go through TSA with this boarding pass on my phone, uh, book my flight online, book my hotel online. Everything was very digital. Maybe took an Uber. Yeah, Paid exactly. for it with Apple Pay. Everything is just <laughs> digital. 
And I arrived at this tournament check-in in Charleston, and we go into the kind of the lobby of this hotel, and, and the little desk is sitting there, and they ask our name, and they pull out a three-ring binder and start flipping through rosters, and then they hand a laminated player card to my daughter, and I was thinking, what in the world is this? <laughs> like, you know, here I am, a, a tech guy. This is the area of the world, soccer, that I'm so passionate about. I can fix this. <laughs> and so uh, Kick basically set out to kind of digitize the soccer world from player carding, rostering, registration, all of the pieces that I thought really needed to be rethought, reconsidered. We had a really big vision for that. Um, and that's kind of what we started out and set out to do. And is, is that ultimately where you guys were? Or was there a pivot somewhere along the way? We, we had a couple pivots. Um, we started, we started out with a little bit more of a, a social kind of strategy, and then determined that registration and player carding was an opportunity that was needed in the market and that there was some opportunity that would tie to partnerships and funding. One of the things that I have focused on a lot um, over the years is distribution because I never thought we would be funded well enough or good enough at sales to outsell competitors. So I was always looking for a, a partner who could help me get my product to market at scale. And so we found a couple of partners in the soccer world that had huge distribution and really antiquated technology. And so my agreement was, I'll rebuild your technology if you make it the exclusive default uh, solution in the market. And therefore, I would be kind of instantly the market leader. So we started doing that. We, we did player carding um, with our first partner, and we got three quarters of the youth clubs in the United States using our technology through that partnership very, very quickly and we're on a path of kind of checking off step after step when we had to make a decision to raise more money or to sell the business um, at a time that the competition was heating up very, very dramatically. There were some uh, tech companies that were getting funded, raising 40, $50 million. We'd raised a few million. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were some very large media companies that were kind of coming down into the space. And so we were being converged on at every angle and um, ultimately, ultimately, we decided that it would be better for us to sell to someone that already had the capital, the distribution, the team that we were not going to be able to fund. And so we sold the company to NBC Sports um, in, gosh, I don't even remember what year that was, maybe 2013 or something like that. Okay. That, that's awesome. Um, and, and that your discussion about distribution, I think, is, is spot on. Um, I've, I had a, a guest on, on the podcast who he asked me my thoughts on what's more important, product or distribution. And I said, honestly, I think distribution trumps product Hands every, down. every day. Hands down. <laughs> and it's why companies like Salesforce can buy a map anything at eye-popping multiples. It's because they're not looking at what, what it's selling today. They, they plug that thing into their distribution, and you've got thousands of sales reps all over the world selling it and channel partners, and it, it it, it just takes off and products important. I tell people, but get the distribution first and, and the product can, can come later. No, I could, I could not agree more um, in terms of the importance of distribution, but you also just touched on something else that is really powerful. And we can talk about this uh, more if you want, but I always tell founders when it comes time to sell their business, mm -hmm. you should never use your math. <laughs> you should use the acquirer's math. And you just gave a perfect example it doesn't matter what map anything's revenues were or distribution or customers or EBITDA. What matters is what is it in the hands of Salesforce? Mm -hmm. Because the next day Salesforce can plug it into the largest channel on earth. Yep. And so we did the exact same thing when we talk about, you know, NBC sports and some of the other companies that we were looking at at the time as potential acquirers, we were this little team. We had amazing partnerships but we weren't even um, capable of, of capitalizing on those partnerships because we didn't have the resources. But we could say to NBC Sports, like the day the deal closes, you have 80 engineers, you have <laughs> unlimited balance sheet. And so their math is what matters. Yep. And so that's a real key insight for entrepreneurs. Yeah, we, um, I was involved in a company called Amentra, which was the first exit I was involved with. And we were acquired by Red Hat and we were 130 people at the time of the acquisition. And within a few years, it was you know, a thousand person team because it's being sold in every corner of the planet <laughs> with very deep relationships. And it, it was seeing that firsthand. It was um, it, it was very eye opening to me what what a company that acquires you can do. And, and to Jim Whitehurst's credit, this was the first acquisition that he did was was our company. 
And he, he said, I'm just going to back up and let you guys do your thing. I want you to keep your name a mantra. I want you to keep all your same software. We're not going to touch you for three years at least. And because they had a bad track record of acquisitions prior to that. So I, I think you can mess. It, it doesn't always work out that you get plugged into the system and it, and it just works. But I think with good leadership uh, that, that it certainly can happen. And we, we saw that firsthand. Yeah. Distribution is, you know, I meet a lot of entrepreneurs, as I'm sure you do as well. They have either vision or already great product. And I kind of immediately go, let's put that on the shelf. Like, how do we get this to market? Yeah. And if they don't have a good answer for that, I immediately think they're going to get past yeah. someone with an in, inferior product is going to pass them. Th they'll end up in a fire sale rather than an eight figure exit. Right? No question. Yeah, that's right. V very interesting. I, I could talk about this forever, but I did want to want to talk about a, a couple more things with you. Number one, I see you're currently still involved in, in running ISL football. Can you talk a little bit about what, what that is? Yeah, so ISL um, was a was a fantastic experience for me. Um, I about um, about the time we were building up kick, you know, again, soccer is a huge passion. My wife and I had this this conversation about potentially um, moving abroad. We pulled our daughters out of school and decided to travel uh, for a year. And um, in that process, we spent some time in Barcelona and thought, you know, we went to like 15, 16 countries, but we really fell in love with Barcelona. I'm a big Barcelona soccer fan. Um, I happened to meet two young, incredibly talented um, college students who were in all places, Charlotte, North Carolina, that were from Barcelona, um, that had an interest in doing some Barcelona-related soccer camps. And so we put together a company to bring some of that methodology from Barcelona to the United States that very quickly went from uh, a Barcelona kind of idea and methodology to an official relationship with FC Barcelona. We became their largest partner in the United States. We built up that business around uh, the U.S. and now in some other countries. And um, I was at the time, again, running another company. I was, you know, chairman, largest shareholder, uh, advising these two young, super talented guys that were just starting their first business. Um, and so I actually... Um, technically sold my interest in that business to my partners in a hedge fund uh, a number of years ago. Okay. And uh, so I'm, yeah, I guess I'm technically um, still sort of chairman emeritus or whatever the okay. right term is. Uh, <laughs> and I, I actually had uh, lunch with them on, on Friday. They had just flown over from Barcelona. So um, that business is still, still growing, but and I now I'm making the connection. We were talking about stacks, the CrossFit gym where I used to work out at. And I remember seeing FC Barcelona there. So that's how that was that, us. that cross yeah. pass and very interesting. That, that, that's very cool. And, and obviously, so now you've been involved in three businesses that are, that are directly related to soccer. So that's that, that I think is the only underlying theme that, I've, <laughs> that, that ties this all together other than the core principles. I think that it sounds like there's some core principles, surround yourself with the right people, delineate authority properly, find some distribution. And it doesn't matter if you're selling khakis or you're selling content or you're selling, uh, you're, you're, you're selling a soccer methodology. So the, some of those core concepts uh, probably apply to anything. That's exactly right. People, yeah, it's people will say, what in the world is the thread between your businesses other than perhaps soccer for those few? And you just you just nailed it. I mean, for me, it is every one of those businesses had a, they were tech enabled. So sort of tech, you know, which creates efficiency and scale, um, finding distribution. I can get pretty excited or pretty comfortable with any business if I can solve for distribution. <laughs> and so even with that, FC Barcelona, you know, early camp idea, the reason we became their largest partner in the U.S. so quickly is because they had other existing partners that were putting 50 kids in a camp or 100 kids in a camp in major markets like New York and L.A. And we came in and said, we'll take, you know, Charlotte, Nashville, Nashville <laughs> and we put, you know, we sold out camps with four or 500 kids. But that's because we had partnerships to reach a lot of families that were interested in soccer. So distribution has been a big, big part of my sort of strategy. Awesome. So what's next? So I sold um, what I sort of think of as my last kind of exit. You know, October 2018 is when I sold my interest in ISL. And almost immediately after that, I took the, the first break really in my life. Because even when I was traveling, I was always running companies and I was going from one to the next, sometimes overlapping, as we've discussed in parallel. I was running multiple companies. So I really took time off for the first time in my kind of working career and said, you know, what's 
what did I do that worked? What are the mistakes I made? What do I want to do going forward? About that time, I was asked to speak at a, at a big entrepreneur's event in Utah, and they asked me to talk about exits. And I, you know, I candidly was like, hey, I'm not a great speaker. I'm not a guy that gets up on stage. And they said, just tell stories. Just tell us about what, you know, good and bad happened. And long story short, I walked off the stage. I was nervous. I had total imposter syndrome because I was looking out at the faces <laughs> going, I know who you people are. You know, I've been following you on Twitter for five years. You're bigger than me. Why am I on stage? Um, but I walked off stage and a, a group, probably eight or nine of these entrepreneurs kind of jogged over to me and said, Mac, we need your help. Um, everything you talked about in terms of how you built your companies, how you found these buyers, how you drove maximum exit value, um, you never once said anything about financial multiple. You never said six mm -hmm. times EBITDA. You never said one times revenue. And it was like this epiphany moment that I thought, yeah, I mean, philosophically for me, I would never sell a company for a financial metric. But every one of these entrepreneurs was hearing, that's how you exit. You know, that's what their bankers were telling them and their CPAs. And so incredibly long story short, I thought I have a unique set of experience where I can help these founders who have amazing businesses. But what makes them amazing is their domain knowledge. You know, they're designing khakis or their soccer mm -hmm. companies or whatever they are. They don't know how to exit a company. They don't, they've never been through this process. And so I created a, a program, a group called Exit DNA. And the idea was simply, can I help founders really optimize their company so they have the option to exit at maximum value in the future? And started it as kind of a test in 2019 and, and fell in love with it. So I've been spending most of my time with Exit DNA, working with founders and entrepreneurs who will ultimately go on to sell their businesses. And I'm really the the guy that's kind of helping them behind the scenes set up that distribution deal, set mm -hmm. up that exclusive agreement, set up that strategic value that's worth a lot more than six times EBITDA. That, that, that's really cool. And just a quick side note, I think what you said about the imposter syndrome, I've always said if you don't feel imposter syndrome at some point, you probably are an imposter. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's so true. <laughs> but, but, but that's great that you had, had that epiphany because I think you're right. I think too often people start to think about how do, I, how do I get the best value and they hire an investment banker who says, well, we're going to go find comps, which off, right off the bat, you're, you're, you're comparing me to, to companies that I think suck and that I'm destroying in the marketplace and that I go head to head with and beat. I don't want to be compared to them. And then you're going to use a multiple. And, and as we've said, nobody really cares about the multiple. They're, they're doing their own math and they're looking at it. And if you can show differentiation, passion, you, you can show that you understand the market, they can scale it for you. So I, so I think that starting from an EBITDA multiple or a revenue multiple is, is dangerous. I, I think comparing those after the fact might be interesting, sure, especially for your business, because if you can show, yeah, the banker would have told you, get a three X multiple. Uh, now I'm curious, are you building banking relationships? You are obviously already have some to where we're going to position this correctly. And then I'm going to hand it over to somebody that I know that I think is a very good fit for you. Or? Yeah. So one of the things that is a little bit unique in my background, um, and this is not in any way to, I have a lot of friends and there are a lot of talented investment bankers. My personal experience was not great with bankers. Mm -hmm. And so we had hired bankers at a few different points along my journey um, fired them at some point in the process and decided to do it ourselves. And, and I think the reason was not that we were arrogant and thought we could do it better, but I was sitting in meeting after meeting thinking, that's not the way I would articulate our vision. That's not mm -hmm. the way I would answer the question. And I thought, you know what, who is better positioned to get someone excited about a business than the founder or the CEO or whatever. And so a lot of what we do in Exit DNA is we empower the founders and the team to be in a position to do all of that themselves or to at least be a material participant in the process. Some of them, depending on size, personal skill set, et cetera, will choose to engage a investment banker or broker dealer. And in that case, I make recommendations if they want. I have some that I really like that you know will keep me involved in the process, um, or they can of course choose to work with anyone they want. But, but I think the key message is you should never outsource that. You should always be involved, even if you hire a banker you're still in the best position to articulate, you know, why your company should be worth so much more money. Mm -hmm. um, I had a client that, that someone we were working with that actually got an inbound offer, which is rare. I believe that you have to sell your company, not that people are going to knock on your door to buy it. I think it's a proactive process. 
but one of our uh, clients and members called and said, hey, Mac, I've got someone. We're coming out of beta, really early company. And he'd already sold a business, so he, he saw the value of what he didn't do the first time. He's mm -hmm. like, I want you to help me the next time. So he's coming out of beta, has 6,000 customers, and says, it's a public business. They want to buy my company. They want me to uh, assign value to the assets. And I think it's probably 4 or $5 million. And I said, why are you talking to him about assets? And he said, well, that's what they asked for. And I said, well, what are they going to do with your business? He said, well, we have all this content. They're going to plug it into their um, over-the-top you know, distribution network. And I said, well, how many customers do they have? He said, $4 million. I said, well, you're charging $16 a month, and they have 4 million customers? It's like, an asset. <laughs> why don't you cut that number in half? What's that? It's like $80 million when they have your business. So if they're trying to offer you four, and it's going to be worth 80 to them when they plug it into their network, like, using the wrong math here. So a lot of that sort of is what I don't see from traditional investment bankers. And so I really try to when also traditional CFOs, 100%. a lot of times people hire people out of banking or private equity to, no come, question. to come be their CFO, and, and they're going to think the same way. Yeah, and it's not a knock. I mean, they're they're smarter than me. So it's not it's not a, a, a knock against that skill set. It's just making sure that a founder or CEO and entrepreneur says, in addition to having our financials buttoned up and bulletproof, and being able to talk, talk really intelligently, what are the other things that are strategically valuable? And can we find buyers that care about those things more than EBITDA? Because, mm -hmm. you know, companies like Google, I mean, Google buys a division of Motorola for $12 billion. Google doesn't need money. Google's yeah. not trying to buy EBITDA. They want a phone. They want a handset, right? So when you find buyers that are trying to buy a strategic asset, the EBITDA multiple doesn't matter anymore. Yep. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, you had mentioned that you've recently, I don't think you worded it this way, but you've recently found blockchain religion. Is there anything you're, you're, you're looking at to commercialize in the, in the blockchain space, or is that more of just a hobby and a passion right now? No, it's, it's, it's actually something that has caught me by surprise. And um, the reason is because I, as of, like I said, 2018, I was kind of thinking, I'm not going to start another company. I'm going to help people. That's what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to enjoy my life, spend time with my family. And, um, and help people. And Exit DNA was kind of my vehicle to do that. And then um, I had this idea where a couple things came together around blockchain. And um, it is probably, I may have shared this with you, it's probably the first time since the early 90s that I felt like I'm seeing something that I'm convicted is going to change the way everything works and happens and other people aren't reacting or seeing it. And so I remember that energy from 95, 96, 97, early web 1.0 world. And that's exactly how I feel right now about blockchain and, and related things, NFTs, crypto. I was going to say, I'm picturing, I'm, I'm picturing soccer coin. I'm picturing soccer cards that are NFTs. <laughs> there, yeah. There's, there's so many applications and, but in a very similar way, what I was so excited about in 95 and 96 was the e-commerce and how it was going to change kind of the way business was done, not, you know, putting up a web page and doing marketing, which is a lot of what people are talking about. In a similar way, I look at like I'm re I've actually filed a patent. It's the first patent I've ever filed recently around um, putting digital um, contracts on physical assets. And so when people talk about NFTs right now, uh, people default to art, mm -hmm. collectibles. All those things are really cool and yeah, interesting. Exactly. Yep. But I'm, I'm sort of looking at what are the underlying characteristics of NFTs and smart contracts that are going to change the way we interact and do business. And so my patent is really around kind of financial transactions tying physical assets to digital assets. And um, so, yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's not something I expected to happen, um, kind of forming a team around it. I've got uh, some developers. I've got some IP attorneys that are doing work for Square and Amazon that have written the patents. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 because it's really energizing me right now that, that's awesome yeah you, you you definitely seem energized but uh, can you maybe speak to the importance of that you know that that gap year if you will that you took from 2018 to, to 2019 yeah and I don't even it, it wasn't even a, a year for me and I think it's different for everybody a lot of my life with the exception of that very first business where I was putting in you know incredibly long seven days a week, you know, 80, 100 hour weeks, sleeping on the floor in the office, all the things you're not supposed to do. Um, but after my daughter was born, you know, my life has been very, very focused on businesses I wanted to create and time with my family. And so I've, I've kept a really good, healthy kind of, you know, quote unquote balance on, on that. 
Um, so I didn't really need the like, hey, I need to stop working for a year mm -hmm. to like slow down because I work seven days a week and hang out with my family seven days a week, you know? And so to me, it wasn't like I needed a gear shift as much as clarity, but taking, taking some time, I think it was a couple months where I really just sat and forced myself to sort of quietly think, uh, which is hard for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was really a reflection on being critical of, of the mistakes I made because I made a bunch, you know, I mean, I, we, we talk in, in, shows like this, it's, it's the highlight reel, right? You know, I had six exits. That's awesome. But I also lost millions of dollars and had awful things happen and made tons of mistakes. And, you know, so I, I sort of took the time to look at all that and really digest it and say, what do I want to do differently as a, as a human? How do I want to act differently? How do I want to present myself? Um, and then business wise, what do I want to do more of? And what do I never want to do again? And so that was incredibly valuable in and helped me get a lot of clarity about what the future looks like. So I want to ask you about that. Did you have, do you have one thing that if you had to do over, it comes to mind that I wish I had done this differently and it would have been different or are there just a bunch of small things and not one that stands out? Well, I think the one that I've been probably the most vocal about, you know, one of the worst thing that's ever happened to me in a business context is I, I went through uh, litigation with a, a business partner and um, my Ross, you know, my longtime mm -hmm. business partner and my mentor and, Several of us ended up getting sued by mm -hmm. what I thought was a friend and a business mm -hmm. partner. And, and it really, you know, appears in hindsight like an effort just to, to hurt me, mm -hmm. um, me in particular, even though it was kind of aimed at several people. And what I, you know, I've taken a lot of time to think about it. And what really I did wrong is I knew in my gut and heart that there was, that we should not have partnered. Um, it was not a good guy. Mm -hmm didn't fit our culture, didn't fit our vision. I was being greedy because he was really smart and he had this unique skill set that I thought, okay, we can really capitalize on this because he's just a unique talent. Um, and so I'm going to overlook all of the gut that is telling me, including, you know, uh, even a few people around me telling me like, you know, don't do it. Uh, because I've been so heavily focused on who I spend time with and who I work with and who I won't work with and how I, you know, um, ethics and all that stuff. And I broke those rules for this business opportunity because I was being greedy. Um, and, you know, it, it came back to bite us. I mean, ultimately, we, you know, we, that business, you know, struggled as a result. I, um, I mean, it cost us a, a lot of money and time and heartache. Um, I mean, ultimately, we knew we did nothing wrong. We won. But like, what do you win? Right? We won yeah. in court, but it doesn't matter. Um, and so I, I really thought differently from that point on about, you know, doing things. One, don't go in against your gut, uh, but also really staying true to kind of the moral ethics and feeling about stuff that you hold important. You know, who you spend time with should be at the top of that list. Uh, my mentor used to always say, you know, care more about the who than the how much. Mm -hmm. And like that's just even more powerful when I look back on that situation. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've had a similar experience where with, you know, multiple times with a particular individual where I, I tried to look past differences. I won't say I, they're not as immoral or, you know, right. legally, or, you know, not, not quite the level, the depth of what you're talking about, but just differences between the two of us. And I, I always had the hubris to think, oh, I can, I can manage that. And, and the reality is it, it was, it was a bad decision on my part. Again, not nearly to the extent didn't end in litigation, didn't, didn't end that way, but, but certainly can appreciate that sentiment. Well, this is great. I've just got one last thing before I let you get out of here, Matt, because you got two businesses to go run. <laughs> so if people want to meet you or get your advice or try to partner with you or raise money from you, what, what advice do you have to them? Not tactically how to get in touch with you, although you know, if you want to share that, please do. But what, what, what advice do you have to people about how to approach someone, someone like yourself? Because a lot of people ask me that. They're like, how do I get in front of people who have had success before, people who are investors, people who can bring, bring a lot to bear. And I think that's very useful advice for these people to hear. How, how, do, you, how do you reach out to a Mac Lackey? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. Um, I wrote a blog post, gosh, it's got to be five years ago now, uh, with a funny title. It's called, Why Should I Meet You or Care? <laughs> and, um, and I wrote it after com coming back from a trip because I went through my inbox and I had, you know, 100 or so emails that were all of the exact same nature. Can I pick your brain? Can I buy you a cup of coffee? And 
the challenge for a lot of people, certainly I would, I would say I'm in this category. Um, I'm not, I don't have some overinflated view of my, my, you know, time or value, but I am really busy and care about things, you know, like I'm not sitting around having casual coffee with anybody because I choose to spend my time with my family and any other second is probably on a project I'm really excited about. So if it's not in that one of those two buckets, to me, it's like, that is not how I allocate time. Mm -hmm. And so the only thing that sort of deviates from that is I genuinely want to help people. And so people helping uh, me identify why this is a good meeting um, kind of breaks through all that clutter. I'll give you the perfect example. ISL exists because a young college student reached out to me cold, which Mm -hmm. a lot of people do. And he specifically said, um, I, you know, I heard from a, a, he found a warm connection. Our mutual friend said that you were a huge soccer guy. You loved FC Barcelona. I have a present for you from Barcelona. And I Mm -hmm. thought, what a thoughtful young guy. I want to talk about Barcelona. It's worth 20 minutes. Hours later, we're sitting in my home office talking about starting our first business together. And so making it a reason, you know, it, it benefits my kids. It's something I care about. It's something that matters in the world to me, um, which is very, I'm pretty vocal. You know, I write about stuff. I talk about it. So if it fits in one of those buckets, I'm very likely to say, you know, let's figure out a way to, to talk. And so for me, I, I wrote that blog post because, you know, I also think it's really hard for people to put themselves in someone else's shoes. And mm-hmm. I've learned this again, very slowly over the years. I was doing the exact same thing as a young entrepreneur. I wanted anybody that would help me mentor me. I wanted their time, not realizing that they make, you know, effectively two or $3,000 an hour. So asking for a cup of coffee is like, Hey, can you go burn a couple thousand dollars so I can, you know, hand you $2 worth of coffee. And so (laughs) thinking about that differently has really changed my approach to asking people for help or time. You know, it's like, okay, what, what would be really meaningful to that individual? And the more successful people get, it tends to be less and less about money and mm-hmm. more about other things, you know, about their kids or about their nonprofit or about their passion. And so, you know, right now, if someone can help me with, you know, blockchain and things I'm excited about, like that moves to the top of my list, not, yeah. not an opportunity to make a, an extra, whatever, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Hey, this could be great. You'll make money on this Mac. I'm like, I don't, that's not motivating to me. Not that I yeah. don't care about money. I do, but, but like the motivations are different, you know? Well, I, I think it's just that as you as you make m- more money and have more success, you you value time over anything. And and like you said, you, your time clearly goes first to your family mm-hmm. and next to your passions. And and so I think I, I, I think people need to think about that a lot when they do want to approach somebody. Number one, is this worth their time? Am I wasting their time? Um, and and to me, I've I've got a few friends who who network very heavily, and I've got a couple where no matter what. I will always take the meeting if they if they ask to introduce me to somebody because I know that they're vetting it and that they're going to make sure that they don't waste my time. So. And, that, and that's such a key part of it, too, is is if you're raising money or doing anything, um, and this is true of venture capitalists, it's not just individuals, the warm intro from a trusted mm-hmm. person is 10x better than a great business plan or anything else. Mm-hmm. I, I'm exact same way. I have a handful of people, if they send me an email and say, would you be willing to meet with, or I think you should meet with? Like, it's on my calendar. I well, mean, no questions asked. Our mutual friend Steve. Yeah, if exactly. Steve, if Steve mentions anybody in any breath, I don't even need to read the email. Yep, send him my way. Yeah, sure. Happy to meet with him. So, so I think that's and doing the homework for you know a, a founder or an entrepreneur. It's not. I mean, most of us are connected by one or two degrees at this mm-hmm. point. So you can find your way to anyone, if especially you in Charlotte. Especially <laughs> in Charlotte. Well, well, look, Mac, I'm so glad to have finally met you. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. That this, is, this has been great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers. Cheers.